Hey, Tanya, thanks for joining us on the show again. Thanks for having me back, Mike. It's always a pleasure to have you and hear what you're working on at CyberScoop. You're always covering very interesting issues. I'm remote this week, as you are painfully aware. I'm working from my parents' house and I'm broadcasting from my old childhood bedroom. And every time I come home, I feel like I'm doing a lot of tech support for my parents who are, you know, older. And it was pretty funny this morning. My mom was convinced that her printer was not working and was so frustrated by it. And really what the only thing that happened was she was just did not select the right printer. So she's happy I'm doing tech support, but also mad at me because apparently I delivered that news in a very smug sort of way. So that's my week. And you're in in Washington, D.C. It's cooler this week. Thankfully, I know you've been dealing with a lot of extreme hot temperature. Yeah, definitely, you know, a problem across the country, but it's definitely a a swampy summer here in D.C. Would you have tricks for how to endure endure that? Do you just stay indoors as much as possible? Well, luckily, as you know, our office is freezing. I'm, I'm actually wearing a sweater right now, so it's I'm able to avoid it most of the day. It is true. You have to sort of dress for two climates coming to work. Aside from the weather, which is always a fascinating conversation, we are going to get into some of the stories you've been covering around a debate in Congress that's centered on privacy and safety legislation that's focused on kids. So really interested in hearing about the debate around those bills that are moving forward. And then we've got a really fascinating conversation between CyberScoop senior editor Elias Grohl and Dr. Biliana Lilly who is a cybersecurity expert, uh, strategist, author. She's talking about Ukraine. She's going to be talking a little bit about Elon Musk and his role in keeping Ukraine online during part of the war. And then also Russian information ops. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. Tanya Riley, you write about cybersecurity, you write about privacy, you write about crypto, but a lot of what you've been doing lately is tracking some legislation in Congress that focuses on a couple of things related to kids online, which has been a growing concern for a lot of people for a long time. And now Congress seems to be paying attention to it lately. Tell us about these two bills. And I'm also curious about the debate that's surrounding this legislation, why some people don't like it. What are the things that you're specifically tracking now in Congress related to the privacy and security of kids? Yeah, so last week we saw a pair of bills pass out of the Senate Commerce Committee, one focused on kids and teens' privacy, the other focused on online safety, which we'll talk about what exactly that means in a bit. And you would think, right, a pair of bills passing out of committee is is a rare and good thing in Congress, but there's been a bit of controversy over these bills, in particular this one bill, the Kids Online Safety Act, supported by a lot of children's advocacy groups, you know, groups that are worried about the impact that social media in particular is having on kids' mental health. And so this bill, what it would do, basically it puts a duty of care on tech companies to not be sharing 
harmful content to kids. So we're talking about content promoting eating disorders or suicide. But where it gets a little controversial is how do you enforce that? How do you define what harmful content is? Something like eating disorders, we all agree that's not something we want kids to be exposed to. But then it becomes a question of, you know, if you're a platform, how do you figure out the difference between content that's promoting eating disorders or promoting resources to help with eating disorders? And that's a lot to ask these tech companies to undergo. Content moderation tools aren't necessarily that sophisticated. And then there's a second issue there where what it'll come down to is these state attorney generals are enforcing the laws. And as we know, in in some states, governors and and lawmakers are cracking down on content around reproductive health or LGBTQ rights. Critics of this law, or of this bill rather, are, are concerned that this might lead to censorship of that kind of content. Because what is harmful to kids might mean different things to different politicians. So essentially, I mean, there's some level of censorship that's going to happen, right? We just sort of have to agree, or there's a discussion and some... Put it well, there's some censorship that we want, right? We want maybe to have some of this harmful content blocked, taken offline, that sort of thing. But we don't want other sorts of things blocked. So is there a way forward to figure out how to filter out the potentially positive content versus the harmful content? I mean, I think some of it comes down to the technology that these platforms have. Obviously, we want to see tech companies investing more in moderation of harmful content. But some of it is just the internet and these companies that are catering to a wide range of adults and children. It's very hard to kind of, I guess, segment these services without engaging in other practices like age verification, which is also something that critics of these bills are worried about, right? So this and both another bill that has to do with kids and teens privacy, you know, you're kind of, I guess, segmenting the internet based on how old someone is, right? So if you're preventing a kid from seeing this content, you might also, it might be easier to just prevent everyone from seeing this content. And I think right now we just don't have the technology to do that in an easy way. Doesn't mean it can't be done or shouldn't be done, but these concerns of censorship are are very real and really immediate just based on how the internet currently works. And right now, I mean, age verification is something that works on the honor system in most cases, right? People say they're above 13 or whatever the age is for being on a social media platform. What would be the process for making that not work on the honor system and actually trying to prove that somebody is how old they say they are? Right. So right now, neither of these bills is prescriptive in terms of how companies should do that. But we've seen some technologies emerge in recent years that, again, are are very debated within the tech community. One is called age estimation. So essentially, an algorithm scans your face and then figures out if you look over a certain age. and, And that works within reason to an extent of ages. There's some criticism that it's not the most effective technology. And then the other means, which is concerning to some groups, is that maybe you just upload a a driver's license or something like that to prove you're a certain age. And where this gets tricky is the way um, the current Children's Online Privacy Protection Act works is essentially it only works or it's only applied to sites where the target audience is children under 13. So when I was growing up, that would be something like Neopets. I don't know what that is now. But, you know, something like Facebook, that's the wide range of ages. So Again, even though it's not telling these companies that they need to do something like ask for a driver's license, that might be a course that they go down so that they can comply with these laws. And some states have put in place age verification requirements already, right? 
Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of kind of legal debate over that, some lawsuits. Um, so like we've seen it for social media and those laws haven't gone into effect yet, the social media ones, but we've also seen it around pornography and adult content. And in those cases, we've seen companies just totally pull out of states and not offer their services because they don't want to go down that route of age verification or trying to censor their content. Yeah, because that gets pretty, pretty tricky pretty quickly, right? If you're asking every user to prove their identity before they look at an adult website. Right, um, and it creates a lot of security concerns, which, you know, we love here at CyberScoop. But you can imagine uploading a database of driver's license to a company that maybe doesn't have the best security or, you know, that's a real target for hackers. <laughs> So there's the online safety issue that is moving ahead in the Senate. And then there's the the other bill that's more privacy focused. Yeah, so that's called the Children's and Teens Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA 2.0. It's an update of the law we already have, really the only federal privacy law we have that applies to children and these websites that are targeting children 13 and under. And this law would raise that age to 16. And what's the complaint about that? That's more along the lines of age verification and what that might lead to. There are fewer concerns in terms of censorship, but the bottom line is lawmakers think it's really easy for tech companies to figure out how old their users are and compartmentalize. Critics of these laws say it's not so easy. What is it that's happening now that has made Congress become more attuned and start focusing on issues of kids' safety and mental health and security and privacy online? I know COPPA has existed and there are things that have been in place to theoretically protect kids' privacy on the internet. But these other things that are part of these bills, what is leading to this current focus on on some of those things? Well, it goes back to the Facebook whistleblower documents and hearings, I, I guess, two or three years ago now, where it was revealed that kind of Facebook knew that some of this harmful content was being served to children. And I think that really set off a firestorm of criticism. There have been certain studies suggesting that maybe social media is bad for children's mental health. It's something the White House has focused on. And in fact, Biden came out in support of both of these bills and urged the Senate committee to pass them. And I think the other part of it is while there's a focus on privacy in general, children's privacy tends to be a very bipartisan issue. It seems like the easier ask, or at least in the Senate, that's the approach they've taken. In the House, they've taken more of an approach of, okay, we want comprehensive federal privacy legislation that will apply to everyone and, you know, help children in the process. It's hard to argue against something like children's safety. I think everyone is kind of on the same page that that's what they want. What critics are saying is, you know, what what is harmful to one child might not be harmful to another child, or these things are, are more complicated than it looks when you write them down, like in a nice little package of a bill. Yeah. So, I mean, as you know, you've been covering privacy and Congress for some time now. And as you noted, there is not comprehensive federal privacy legislation. Do you expect that these bills will move forward? I mean, either, even though there's bipartisan support, a lot of these privacy issues have been kicked down the road for a long time now without really becoming law. Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen if these bills will pass out of the Senate. I think there's interest. The one big hurdle would be that right now there aren't any companion pieces in the House. And as I said, I think the House is more focused on comprehensive federal privacy legislation. They have not reintroduced that yet, but I think we'll see some movement after recess. I think 
At the very least, these bills will certainly change before they get a full Senate vote. There was discussion at the markup hearing that they still need to address some of these criticisms that we've talked about. So TBD. Yeah, well, I know you'll be tracking it. Thanks for that update. As always, a pleasure to have you on this show. This episode is featuring an interview that I did not do, but Elias Grohl did, senior editor at CyberScoop. He's going to be talking to Biliana Lilly. She is a cybersecurity strategist, author, expert on Russian information operations. And Biliana and Elias are going to be talking about Ukraine, how Western assistance to Ukraine has been so key in its cyber defenses, and the role Elon Musk actually played in the war in keeping Ukraine connected to the Internet. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Google. Do you want to protect your agency and data from the most sophisticated cyber attacks? Visit cloud.google.com slash security to access resources and expertise to get started today. I'm joined today by Biljana Lilly, the chair of the Cybertrack at the Warsaw Security Forum and the author of the book, Russian Information Warfare. Biljana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're nearly a year and a half into the war in Ukraine. Russia's invasion has failed to achieve its goals. Ukraine's government has showed remarkable resilience. And in the face of what was expected to be an onslaught of Russian cyber attacks as part of this conflict, Ukraine's digital infrastructure has largely stayed up and running. And one big reason for this is cybersecurity assistance from the private sector. Biliana, you recently presented a paper on this issue at the International Conference on Cyber Conflict in Tallinn, Estonia. So I'm wondering if we can begin perhaps before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of how the private sector has been working with the Ukrainians to secure their systems. Just to describe the scale and nature for listeners who might not be familiar with it of private sector cybersecurity assistance to Ukraine, what does that picture look like? It's a great question. So dozens of companies have been helping Ukraine since the beginning of this conventional stage of the invasion in February of last year. But even before that, some of the larger cyber threat intelligence companies have been providing timely intelligence to the Ukrainian government months in advance of the conventional invasion. And the number of companies, so from our data collection, we identified about 20 to 30 companies that have been providing assistance. But that number is probably higher because no one, not even the Ukrainian government, has a current list of contributions from all companies across the globe that are assisting Ukraine in one way or another. They vary from the provision of hardware to software to cybersecurity services. And with regards to the volume and size of contributions, they also vary from several hundreds of millions of dollars to one report or one individual or one, for example, instance of incident response and assistance there. So the contributions are rather diverse. And some companies also intentionally don't disclose them. Some companies have a very clear policy of non-disclosing the types of, con not disclosing the types of contributions that they're providing. Others are more willing to talk to us. So I also want to caveat this. Whenever we still read reports about different contributions, it's important to consider that there may be companies that are helping massively and are very important to preserving the resilience and enhancing the resilience of Ukraine's networks or helping with a particular incident response to mitigate a particular 
attack, but we wouldn't know about them because they just don't want to be in the public eye. For me, it seems like you can kind of break down the assistance to Ukraine in, in two main buckets, right? Hardware, software, and maybe a third in services. Exactly. And the one that I find the most fascinating is probably a component of the hardware assistance. And that's the Starlink assistance, right? Which has been just this key tool for the Ukrainian military. They're running their war in large part via Starlink terminals. And I'm wondering a bit first off, if you can just describe how the Starlink relationship, or rather the Starlink aid package to Ukraine, how that came together, what's worked with the Starlink assistance to Ukraine and what the Starlink relationship and their work in Ukraine tells us about the role of companies of this nature and situations of armed conflict. Elias, you hit the nail on the head immediately. You're like, not even, not even, not even warming me up with questions. <laughs> yep. Starlink <laughs> is, yeah, one of the very interesting cases that's also, uh, that's also an example of some lessons that we have to learn and some policies that we may want to improve going forward. And by we, I mean NATO mm. member states or Western governments that are willing to support a country that's a victim of aggression or a victim of an armed attack. So in the very beginning of the war, I think that this conventional phase of the war caught a lot of us off guard. I don't think the Western community really expected the Russians will row through the border in Ukraine and try to capture Kiev in three days that aggressively and that overtly. And the um, introduction of Starlink or the, the entrance of Starlink into the war was rather unconventional. The vice prime minister of Ukraine sent a tweet to Elon Musk on the day of the invasion when the Vyasat hack happened and asked for assistance. And Elon Musk immediately authorized the deployment of Starlink to Ukraine. And ever since Starlink has become pretty instrumental to the war effort, it's being used by over 150,000 Ukrainians. It's used for command and control communication. President Zelensky uses it to communicate with allied forces. It's a very important channel for communication in the war. And one particular moment where I very much respect Elon Musk and what he's done, but one particular moment where I didn't was last October when he made a public announcement and also reached out to the Pentagon saying that SpaceX cannot indefinitely support the provision of Starlink to Ukraine because it's expensive. And this really alarmed a lot of us, people that are monitoring the war, because I do realize that companies are profit-making institutions and they do not have a mandate to, to protect individuals. They do not have a mandate to protect the war or take sides at a, in a war. I completely understand that. But in the middle of a war, when you know your services are critical to the defense of a country that's under an armed attack, like you don't, you don't make a statement like that. That's just, that is inappropriate on so many levels. And I'm glad that he reversed that statement. Starlink is still being used in Ukraine. But that moment showed the world. It showed Western allies. It showed Ukraine how risky it is to rely on one particular tool for command and control to such an extent in the middle of a war when there is no guarantee for its continuous provision. I think, if anything, this thought potential government governments under attack in the future that they need to have a more binding agreements with the particular companies whose services they're using to such a critical extent. Has that happened 
with regard to Starlink in, in Ukraine, have the Ukrainians at all reassessed their relationship with Starlink or with Elon in, in particular as a result of this? I think they're still very much using Starlink. I know they're relying on other communications as well. They do have uh, redundancy built in. In the event of the need to use a different communication command and control, but I still think that Starlink is pretty much used in Ukraine, and uh, it's still a very critical part of the war effort. It's become a part of their critical infrastructure. Having looked at this closely, how do you assess the way that Elon himself, in his kind of personal interventions in Ukraine and, and in the conflict, how do you assess his role as this charismatic CEO who, on the one hand, is, is willing to make these snap decisions to, to provision this really critical piece of technology and then on other occasions pulling back in weird ways, limiting its availability in certain regions of Ukraine and serving as this intermediary to the Russians at points of the conflict. How do you read his role in this conflict? I think he is an incredibly influential man and he has made so much progress on behalf of humanity on so many levels. But I think he has the resources to actually hire a solid policy team. I think he needs to work with experts, subject matter experts. I know you're laughing, but I think it will really serve him well to have a few advisors who he actually listens to who are subject matter experts on these topics. And I think it will enhance his brand. It will show that he has nuance and wisdom in his policies. I think he's uniquely suited to have massive influence as a private actor on in a number of geopolitical conflicts. I'm not talking about only about Ukraine. And I think with a solid policy team behind him and advisors, he can be he can be just a force of nature. Well, dare to dream, Elon will listen to this and take your advice and will have made a big difference for the world and Elon will hire a top-notch policy team. So that was kind of the hardware side of it, right? Let's get into the software side of it as well. One of the things you touch on in your paper, which I, I wasn't aware of, was the existence of these devices called AWS Snowballs and their role in getting data out of Kiev. I'm wondering if you can tell the story of, of the use of these AWS Snowballs and the effort to save Ukrainian government data while Russian forces are approaching Kiev. Absolutely. And this was another example of these unorthodox methods in which companies started to assist Ukraine in the very beginning, because there really was no roadmap to deal with the situation. Companies had to make very, very brisk risk assessment and decisions to, first of all, do we exit Russia? Do we exit Ukraine? And second of all, do we support Ukraine? And in addition to that, do we overtly support Ukraine? Or do we try to do this through indirect channels? And specifically with regards to the migration to the cloud, this was critical to the resilience and basically to Ukraine staying online from the very beginning of the war. Because before this stage of the war, Ukraine has been conducting, especially the government, has been conducting all its data transfers while using data centers that are located and servers that are located physically in Ukrainian government buildings in Ukraine, which would make those physical locations and data centers vulnerable to missile attacks from the Russians. So you, the Ukrainian government realized very early on, even before the invasion, that they could be vulnerable to missile attacks, to missile strikes. And because of that, they changed the law in Ukraine, allowing for data to be transferred outside of the country. And 
they issued a public call for help and Amazon AWS responded almost immediately. And there was a meeting in the Ukrainian embassy in London. I wish this was recorded and I wish we had like a whole video of this meeting because I think this would be one of those historic moments when we talk about data migration and sovereignty in the cloud. And I think it will be a really important case study. But basically, a senior person representing AWS and the Ukrainian ambassador to London met and they created a list of the essential data of, I believe, 27 Ukrainian ministries, 18 Ukrainian universities, and some of Ukraine's private sector entities, including Ukraine's largest bank, Privat Bank. They literally listed the critical assets. And then three days later, the Snowball devices, which are mobile devices for data transfer, were literally located in Kiev, in Ukraine, loading the data and then exporting the data physically outside of the country and then putting it on, dispersing it in uh, data centers all over Europe. In this way, basically, the Ukrainians build resilience in their communication and services. And because of that, Ukraine is the Ukrainian government, hospitals, the educational system still managed to function. And it wasn't just Amazon, it was also Microsoft. They're basically using Microsoft Cloud and Amazon Cloud as well at the moment. So were they basically trying to, at some point, did they have to smuggle these snowball devices with all of this data out of Kiev and I imagine try to make sure that they weren't yep there's some untold sort of spy techno thriller about smuggling Ukrainian data out of a besieged oh, Kiev yeah. in order to like save the data of the Ukrainian pension system exactly right? I've seen some of those trucks literally the WS is the snowballs are, are loaded on trucks and they're being exported out of the country in the first four months, over 10 petabytes of data were exported. This is a huge amount. Also, another thing to consider is that I just had this conversation with a, a Ukrainian representative basically explained that to us at SciCon, which is NATO's cyber conference in Estonia that takes place every year at the end of May in Tallinn. And he said that largely the data migration was considered a success. But some of the data wasn't standardized properly and wasn't exported properly because it, it was basically stored on legacy systems. So the data migration process wasn't perfect and it wasn't complete, which makes total sense because for anyone that has worked in security, when you tell them, basically in one meeting, the entire critical assets and essential data of a whole country was put on, on a list. Like everyone who works in cybersecurity and data migration will tell you, like, this is this is absurdly fast. Like there must have been mistakes made here. And yes, clearly this wasn't a perfect migration. So I think there will be a lot of stories that we can learn going forward with regards to what is the speed versus comprehension and quality of a data migration process that could be conducted in duress or literally while a country is under attack. But as a result of this data migration, they, it seems like Ukraine has been able to accelerate its digital services. There's now this comprehensive app that allows citizens to access government services in a, in a sort of new way, or it existed a bit before the war, I think, but the war has kind of turbocharged this effort. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, most of their services, not all of them, are conducted through the cloud. And Ukraine has, Ukrainian representatives have stated on multiple occasions that Amazon and Microsoft basically saved the ability of the government to conduct its functions without interruption or without major interruptions. So the cybersecurity assistance has been another component of this. And this, I think, falls into a bit of both buckets, right? It's a bit, bit of software, a bit of hardware. 
And it seems from where I've been sitting that it's been largely successful. There's been attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure. The worst of them seem to have been thwarted. There's been some successful ones. I'm wondering if you can kind of talk through a little bit the cybersecurity assistance for Ukraine and what you think has worked and what hasn't on that front. It's a great question, Elias. So I think we're going to learn more and more about what worked and what didn't in different stages of the war in the decades to come. Because right now, we still don't have the perfect picture and we're still in the fog of war fighting a war. But we now know what worked, for example, in the beginning during the disruptive phases of Russian cyber warfare against Ukraine is the anti-DDoS tools that several companies provided, specifically Cloudflare and Google, were instrumental in making sure that Ukraine can survive the DDoS onslaught that it was subjected to. Those companies were very important at first. They were even, I believe, Cloudflare was even called at some point the starling of the initial stages of the war because it was that essential to Ukraine's ability to defend itself in cyberspace. We also know Microsoft has been helping a lot with cyber threat intelligence even before the war started. There are reports that now show that I believe there were six different APTs and eight malware families, if I'm not mistaken, that Microsoft identified even before the war, the conventional part of the war began. And those cyber threat actors were already conducting reconnaissance and prepositioning malware on over 50 different organizations in Ukraine. So that information was critical. There was a 24-7 encrypted channel between Microsoft and Ukrainian government already before the conventional stage of the war even began. We also know Mandiant has been instrumental in providing cyber threat intelligence, threat hunting, as well as incident response. ESET, the Slovakian company, they're small but mighty. They have been assisting with taking down malware and mitigating attacks from Industroyer 2. And you covered that in one of your articles last year. And we know that could have been quite a massive attack, turning off the electricity for over 2 million Ukrainians. So there were some near misses that could have been quite successful if there wasn't any foreign support to help Ukraine. We also know from the Ukrainian government itself, Ukraine's third has responded to over 7,000 incidents last year. That's a lot of cyber attacks. And over 1,000 of them required an actual human in the loop to go and respond to, a, to a, the particular incident. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up in Destroyer 2. So for listeners who aren't aware, this was a very sophisticated piece of malware that was directed at Ukrainian electricity generation services. It looked like an effort to shut off power in Ukraine again. It was discovered before it was ever deployed. And one of the great mysteries is, of course, how it was discovered and who discovered it, which might be a part of this assistance campaign. We don't know. It could have been the Ukrainians who found it themselves. We don't know. And I think, you know, it bears emphasizing also that the Ukrainians have been on a crash course of building up their own cybersecurity capacity really since this conflict, this stage of this conflict with Russia began really in 2014, right? And there have been several attacks on the Ukrainian electricity grid that have been successful and the Ukrainians have since stood up this really impressive CERT organization that's been working overtime during the conflict. They deserve a lot of the credit here in this situation as well. But I wonder if we can go back to the tech companies. Uh, I'm curious, where do you think they fell short in their assistance to Ukraine? It's an excellent question. From the 
latest discussions that I've had along the sidelines of different conferences. One issue is the coordination of assistance and its timely provision. Another is that for certain companies, some of the free licenses that they have provided are about to expire. And companies have started discussions with governments with regards to who will be paying for these services going forward and for how long the companies can afford to provide assistance free of charge. And here is where I agree. Companies are profit-making institutions, and it makes sense that they will be selling that service. And there are discussions with governments for potential collaborative funds where governments could provide that support. Because also something we should remember, it's we almost take it as a given that this war was started by the Kremlin. It was started by the political leadership of a country. It's a war fought by politicians, by states. It wasn't started by a private sector actor. So we cannot expect companies to defend a country when that country was attacked by an actual nation state. I think that's the job of NATO and NATO governments. So one issue would be who pays for the provision of the assistance and Here's where I also agree with Elon that, yes, Starlink should be a paid service at some point, but I don't agree with the very disruptive message, hey, I'm going to announce to the whole world that I'm going to cut the service if you don't pay me. Another conversation to have is with regards to the compatibility of different services and the information that cyber threat intelligence companies provide to Ukraine. But from what I hear, they've been very open to sharing intelligence with the right Ukrainian representatives. In the beginning, it was difficult to identify who the players are. And it was very much the relationships were built very ad hoc and very quickly. I think going forward, this problem has more or less been addressed in the case of Ukraine. But in future scenarios where, let's say, Moldova or Georgia, hopefully this never happens, but thinking from the perspective of a geopolitical analyst, those are countries where there's a certain level of risk that they may be also basically subject to an armed aggression. So if this happens in these countries and companies would be willing to provide assistance, I don't think anyone has at this point a breakdown of who the, the actors that need to be contacted to coordinate that assistance would be. I just want to put a pin in it and ask you, do you think that tech companies coming out of the conflict in Ukraine know how to operate in a time of war? Have they learned how to do this work coming out of Ukraine? A big deal. I think they have stress tested a lot of their tools, hardware, software, and cyber services. Mm -hmm. And I think they have some massive lessons learned about cloud migration, cyber threat intelligence, how to communicate with a government in conflict. I think they have, yeah, learned a ton. And another issue I wanted to bring up with regards to coordination CDAC is a body that was stood up last year in March, March of 2022. CDAC stands for, it's Cyber Defense Assistance Collaborative for Ukraine. And it's a non-governmental organization that was set up to coordinate assistance from Western, basically private IT companies to Ukraine. And it was set up by one of my co-authors on this research, Greg Rattery. CDAC is growing and he was coordinating the assistance, he's partially coordinating the assistance of over 15 companies, including Microsoft, including Mandiant and a few others that are a part of the, the organization. And what they are trying to do is have an inventory of the potential services and products and tools that 
foreign companies can offer to Ukraine and then also coordinate with Ukrainian, different Ukrainian agencies and understand their needs as quickly as possible and then basically serve as this focal point where resources where supply meets demand, basically. So let's kind of step back for a sec here and look at maybe other potential conflicts. In the event of another conflict kind of of this nature, major interstate warfare, do you think that we would see the same level of private sector assistance? Like, let's say China invades Taiwan. Do you think we see the same kind of crash effort to assist Taiwan? I think no one can answer that with a definitive certainty at this point. I've seen from the different conversations that I have attended and the discussions I have attended at high level between different stakeholders that are actually involved in Ukraine, there are a lot of questions to consider with regards to market share of companies, their presence and footprint in China, with regards to what the U.S. policy will be towards that conflict, how much the United States will get involved. In the case of Ukraine, it was very clear who the aggressor and the attacker is. It may not be as clear in other conflicts. And another major issue is how we define an armed conflict. How we define that a country is at war. What if the confrontation just happens in cyberspace? What are the red lines? We may have them in theory, but in practice, if Russia has escalated the war in Ukraine in February of last year, just in cyberspace, would we have seen such an outburst of support? I doubt it. From the discussions that we've had with very senior individuals, including international Red Cross representatives, it seems that the understanding that there must be a physical effect, a physical, basically, demonstration of the conflict, demonstration of aggression for countries to to declare that to be a war needs to be there for other countries to also intervene. Do you think that the relatively not lucrative nature of the Russian market made it easy for Western tech companies to pull out and kind of put their eggs in the in the Ukraine basket and say, okay, we're going to step out of the Russian market and try to aid Ukraine. To what extent do you think that those kinds of market considerations underpinned the decisions by Western tech companies to step in and, and aid Ukraine? It's a great question. So I think there were some debates in boardrooms that I wish we could be private too, that I think will never be. I think companies made, especially in the beginning, I don't think it was clear. In hindsight, we say, yes, thousands of companies left Russia. Yay for democracy, success. We showed that our companies have hearts and humanitarian priorities and they care about victims and aggressors and all of that. But Also, something that actually our Ukrainian colleagues highlighted for me a few days ago is like, they said, Biliana, don't take for given the fact that we needed to win the information war at first Mm -hmm. and win the narrative and take over the narrative that Ukraine is a victim. We needed to make sure that we make it so damaging for brands of companies that stay in Russia that they need to exit. Yale even started a list, a wonderful list with explaining what the exit strategies of certain countries was. I think that really helped to inject a little more certainty in the decisions of those companies and kind of prompt them to go in the right direction, although that meant that they will lose revenue and will have to exit a market that for some of them was very profitable. And leaving the Chinese market in the event of an invasion of Taiwan would be a very much more difficult decision than the decision to leave the Russian market, right? It will be. 
but it's not impossible if we think about this from the perspective of what's important for a large-scale corporation. It is, can we incentivize a transition from a market, a volatile, conflict-prone market into another market where return on investment could still be high in the long run? Can governments assist companies with that transition? There basically are a number of incentives that I think if the conflict is driven by a political decision, which it likely will be, then our governments have a responsibility to think about how to make it easier for companies to exit that market and incentivize a transition into markets that are more stable and more, let's say, like-minded. Well, Biljana, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise and your research. I'm sure our readers or our listeners rather appreciated it. We'll have links to your research in the show notes and links to some of the CyberScoop articles that we've referenced during this chat. But Biliana, thank you so much for joining us on Safe Mode. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Google. Together, Mandiant with Google Cloud helps public sector organizations become more secure from cyber attacks. Visit cloud.google.com slash security for threat reports, resources, and security best practices. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review. And share it with your friends, your mom, or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.